0: Simply put, I mean, it's the, it's the uh, intersection of actors and interests, predominantly in the land and cyber. So, you know, the cyber domain is a thing right now that's kind of hot. But we're saying that, you know, that if you if you look at the construct of all the domains and how we organize, I mean, really, it's humans first that, you know, all war is eternally human, a human endeavor. So humans are always a part of, of this space. But what's happening in the present is that this human domain is shaping, you know, modern competition conflict faster with the speed of networks, And communications. So, networks, I mean, networks define the human domain and shape the current character of conflict and competition.
1: Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElrogate, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Arnell David, Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army, and he's currently the Chief of the General Staff's Initiatives Group for Army Headquarters UK. Colonel David, thank you for being on the 1CA podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us Thank about you. your uh, your current position out there in the UK? We know you're a civil affairs officer in the army. What are you doing in the UK right now?
0: So I'm a civil affairs officer, but working for the Chief of General Staff in the British Army on strategy. So and advising. So uh, I'm working in their strategy branch, and we're help we're working on a new uh, strategy for their army.
1: Okay. Well, that's a great tie into our topic for today, which is your role as author of a book it's titled military strategy for the 21st century people connectivity and competition and you wrote this book with charles cleveland retired lieutenant general benjamin jensen and susan bryant this was published by cambia press this last year and we want to dig into why you guys wrote this book why now um, talk about some of the pieces of it and pique the interest of listeners to uh, go out and buy a copy on their own so let me start, sir, by um, asking you, what's your elevator pitch about the book?
0: Well, obviously, in the title, it gives it away a little bit. But I, I just tell people it's a book about military strategy and human domain. We present some new ways to think about power and influence in this rapidly changing world, and we construct a theoretical foundation for this human domain concept that you know, not too long ago, you know, had a lot of momentum and attention, but eventually has fallen from the discourse.
1: So it's fallen away from the discourse. So is that why why you wanted to bring up this topic and this topic now? Do you, do you think there used to be a focus in this area and it's fallen away?
0: Yeah. So, you know, General Cleveland he had a good allegory for, you know, to this uh, bowling frog story where, you know, ever vigilant to avoid the gigging stick, the frog's unaware of the rising temperature. And that's how he describes our, our current situation, you know, the United States and, and our, and our militaries that we're the bowling frog. We don't, we're not really aware of, like, what's really happening, how the, the changing character of conflict. Is unfolding before our eyes, but we're not really reacting in a way that makes us relevant. So the four of us, um, we were together in the Chief of Staff of the Army Strategic Studies Group in 2015. We all shared, you know, this common concern that the Army was was going to pivot and shift to the, from the experience of lessons of our Afghanistan of counterinsurgency warfare to, you know, what we're most comfortable with, you know, full-scale conventional warfighting. And and rightly so, you know, what happened in Crimea with Russia and everything, and you know, this multi-domain battle was emerging as a concept, as well as a third offset. Was taking shape in the Pentagon, so all of our collective experience and professional, you know, instinct told us that this shift, this lifting and shift, you know, it, well, it might be necessary. You know, we didn't want to lose a lot of the harder insights from what we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and elsewhere around the world. So, what started as a series of articles that we were going to start publishing in places like War on the Rocks or Foreign Affairs, it turned into this book. Which, you know, after two years, we, we finally got it published.
1: Well, congratulations! Two years. To a lot of people, it's probably fast to write a book. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> you guys took a lot of those articles and pieced them together, and then worked collectively to. How did you divide the work by chapters and focus on different areas?
0: Yeah, so we, you know, in the beginning, we outlined it by uh, focus areas, chapters, and then we just we'd mer- people, we people, you know, we between two or three of us, we merged chapters, and yeah, it's tough for four authors, you know, putting making that a coherent. Flow throughout a book is is quite the challenge, but Ben Jensen was kind of the principal. You know, he's the best writer of us all, or, or the, the the primary author stitching everything together. And um, and we met regularly to talk to get to to get us back on because we you know all four of us going to always agree on everything. But but that book after at the end of it all after two years, like I can I think all of us can see that yeah that is
1: definitely representative of all, all our ideas and we're in violent agreement of what we're recommending in the book. That's wonderful. So I know your background in civil affairs. Uh, General Cleveland, I believe he's qualified, uh, he's retired now, but was re- qualified in Special Forces for the Army. Do either Benjamin Jensen or Susan Bryant have a background in civil affairs?
0: No. So Ben Jensen was a military intelligence officer, in the Res- or he is a, a major in the Reserves. He teaches at the Marine Corps University and at American University. He's a prolific writer. Um, he's writing about these these topics regularly. Uh, Susan Bryant's a strategist. Um, She's helped me become a strategist and influenced me to do it, as well as John Cleveland. And she just retired recently as a colonel. So she's had experience as a strategist, you know, working with all different types of capabilities to include civil affairs.
1: And what has the response been so far when you're talking about the book and you're sharing with other people in the military community?
0: Well, it's been quite positive. Uh, I I don't know if people just don't want to be honest or don't want to give critical feedback, but... So far on social media and as we market it and talk to people, I've done a couple of speaking engagements and traveled to, to talk about the book. And it, I mean, even in Kuwait, I went to a convention in Kuwait and it was received pretty well, some of the ideas in the book. I and mean, they just, it, people kept coming up to me afterwards saying it makes total sense. And hopefully, I more people to continue to pick it up and read it.
1: Good. Well, let's talk about some of the details of the book. And I want to start with the preface. In it, General Cleveland wrote, We lack organizations and leadership. At the highest levels, oriented to the most prevalent forms of conflict, irregular and population centric. Colonel David, why do you think that's the case?
0: That's a good question. So that point was made early in the book for good reason. I mean, if you look at how things progressed in the, the global war on terror, there was there's a lot of initial success. Um, it started with small special operations elements in Afghanistan with the you know your infamous horse soldiers with all these movies coming out now in Iraq with 10th Group with you know General Cleveland. Working alongside the Kurds and the Peshmerga, and to, to the over, you know, overlooked success of uh, Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines and the similar effort in Colombia, you know, the, the these are all led by Special Warfare leadership at the operational and tactical levels, not not necessarily you know your civil affairs, your psyop, special forces leadership, not necessarily your surgical strike types. They are instrumental to the the fighting of irregular, population-centric conflicts, but as these things grow in scale. You know, the military response is, you know, like if you look at what happened in Mosul and Iraq when we went back in just recently. I mean, the only things we have to offer are, you know, your brigade, division, corps, field army headquarters of conventional leaders who are, you know, are charged to lead and prosecute these wars amongst the people. It's not that they are not good leaders, but by no means, I mean, they are the best in the world, but they are the best at bringing the hammer and violence. And these types of conflicts require those most intimate with its conduct and, and understand its character. And so a lot of the leaders that, you know, whether it's your special forces group commander or what have you, they might rise up to be a TSOC commander, commanding general. But in terms of managing these larger efforts, I mean, it's it's not likely the way we're structured right now that they would be in charge of prosecuting that type of war.
1: And when you look, so that's the U.S. When you look at some of our adversaries, do you think that they're succeeding in having the leadership organizations formed for irregular or population-centric warfare?
0: In terms of irregular, such, Publish such warfare. Uh, I mean, it's like what's happened with the Taliban. I mean, even though they're getting you know some support or external support from whether it's Pakistan or elsewhere, how can we, without with all these resources and tremendous might of NATO and the, and the U.S., continue to struggle in dealing with the Taliban and they keep they're able to recruit? Um, so I, I think they're pretty they're way effective at controlling the narrative, their information campaigns, their the way they're you know they're connecting with the people. I mean, they're they're really good. And one one to look out for right now. I mean, for, for quite some time, is Iran. I mean, the way they, I mean, ha- how they're able to mobilize just massive networks of people all over the, I mean, all over the world with their reach, with Hezbollah and all these different groups that st- are connected to Iran. I mean, it's pretty impressive. So, and I mean, just, I was at a conference the other day at, at Chaser at Sandhurst, and uh, this was a, a big topic of discussion
1: there. Are there any other adversaries who were doing it well?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there's a host of them, right? The Chinese, you know, they went, went, went without fighting, I mean, they're fighting in this threshold below armed conflict with the way they're creating these networks. I mean, we talk about in the book, the, the one belt, one road uh, project they have where they're just creating these, these, these flows, these big networks. And it's, it's to increase their, their power and influence in, these, in all, you know, in that whole area of the, the, the one belt, one road, all the different areas. It's, it's moving to, through, uh, Russia, of course, this hybrid warfare stuff that they're doing, trying to avoid this, is a similar threshold of like article five of NATO are doing a number of things in cyberspace and, and, you know, disinformation campaigns. So to name a few.
1: Right. Colonel David, in the book you wrote, America's military needs to be part of a global security network optimized for 21st century influence campaigns backed by military force as opposed to fighting 20th century military campaigns backed by information operations that often do not match the local context. Sir, are you calling for influence before force? In some cases, yes. I think that the uh, information objective should have
0: primacy and, and lead off. It, it ultimately comes down to every circumstance is different and it, it might be a matter of sequencing. But too often, you know, and I've watched this in, in a number of campaigns or places I've been on deployments. You know, we, they plan the kinetic effect or the, the, the lethal aspect of the fight. And then they're like, okay, let's sprinkle in some, some magical IO dust after the kinetic operation or even to use a little bit of it before. But it might be the main thing. The main object object that we need to pursue. Uh, so, on my last deployment, I was asked as the SIG Chief for Special Operations Joint Task Force Afghanistan, Afay, I was asked by the, you know, the CG to look into information warfare and assess how how well we were doing it across not just you know Sajid Fae, but resolute support and with NATO, and then and, and the Afghans. And so, we I brought a star major from a uh, Asymmetric Warfare Group AWG, and we we'd go around on, as we we're doing our assessment, and he, he had a good way, a clever way of explaining it he would say, Hey, if I was, you know, if I just walked up to you and slapped you in the face and you'd be like, why, why'd you just hit me? But if I said, Hey, stop this behavior. And then I walk up and then punch you in the face, you know why it hit you. And then that's kind of the way, you know, the, what should lead out. So the, the IO objective or trying to explain, you know, whether it's trying to intimidate or influence or coerce or manipulate that may, that may lead, that might be the main thing. And then you might be able to accomplish your objectives without even having to physically fight. So I thought it was kind of a clever way of explaining information warfare and why it matters and which what should come first, you know, Yeah. If that answers the question.
1: I think it does, and that's built on your experiences and those of the other authors. So let's talk about the three policy recommendations in the book. First, you and the fellow authors advise that we define the human domain. So how would you define it?
0: So, of course, we define it in the book, but uh, simply put, I mean, it's the, it's the uh, intersection of actors and interests. Predominantly in the land and cyber. So you know the cyber domain is a thing right now. It's kind of hot, but we're saying that you know that if you if you look at the construct of all the domains and how we organize, I mean really it's humans first. That you know all war is eternally human, a human endeavor. So humans are always a part of, of this space. But what's happening in the present is that this human domain is shaping you know modern competition and conflict faster with the speed of networks and communications. So networks, I mean networks define the human domain and shape. The current character of conflict and competition
1: the second recommendation you have is a public private partnership for data analysis to map the human domain and roots of instability and i know there are a lot of contractors out there, there are a lot of private industry members who have data analytics tools so there are some partnerships to some degree that are already happening how do you think that's gone so far and is there support for growing this idea
0: yeah, that's a good question so I mean i do dunno if you've heard of PICs. I think one of your past podcasts might have someone alluded to it or talked about it. But the Protected Internet Exchange PICs by a, a project being run by the uh, NGA is doing some of this. So it's a collaborative platform and it's pulling in data and sharing it and managing it. But in the book, so I mean there there's that and there's probably number no of other examples. But in the book what we're proposing is just something a little bit bigger. We believe the type of data we want to collect should be called, you know, should be a common resource pool so in the in the in chapter five I, I put together a graphic illustration of this idea which is probably you know better explains it than me explaining it um but essentially you know, the dod or government you know if it hosted this enormous data set it would it would enable a, a, a number of things now, for instance if you, you know before you deploy if you want to map out the human geography you can start to ask questions or do that rather quickly because the data is in there uh, you can run machine learning eventually, because this is present technology today. You can run machine learning and algorithms to ask important questions to accelerate your understanding of an area or population. Dr. Ben Jensen, so my buddy Ben, he's uh, I helped him get this thing going with in the future studies group with another major. He's got this uh, project Athena where he's taking all the data from uh, war games, the joint staff to feed into this AI platform, you know, Athena. So it's pretty exciting, incredible. You'll be able to ask a of the questions, uh, whether you're doing some planning or what have you, you know, kick back some answers and, and help you, you know, plan or, or understand what it is it you're doing. Um, so this is what we need to do with civil Information manager sim and, and other data we collect is put it into this common resource pool and management. We think that DOD, and we recommend DOD does it because it's the only organization that has the, the, interpro- the, the, the level that needs to be managed as we're so big. And we have all the data just already. Most of the data already. We just need to host it in the cloud somewhere.
1: Okay. It sounds to me the concept is similar to the way that after nine eleven, intel communities started to collaborate a lot more on intel sharing and have more common platforms. Um, you know, we created a whole new structure for that, and, and how to sift through it all and, and analyze what's uh, important and what
0: what isn't. Exactly. How- like, like for instance, like in a sorry, like in North Korea or the Koreas. Talking to other, you know, NCOs and, and officers that are over there, and they're doing some of this, they're making an effort to, and this needs to be brought up to a higher level where it's being managed more, pro, you know, it's more comprehensive. But, I mean, imagine all the different groups that are going, the charities or different NGOs that are going in North Korea. I mean, we don't have, where's all that data going? Where does it sit? Having all that information will be really helpful when the, whenever the balloon goes up or the crisis comes, we'll be able to deal with it and alleviate suffering and act more
1: quickly and appropriately. Yeah, good point. want to give you a preview of some upcoming episodes of the 1CA podcast. We'll be interviewing authors of the CA issue papers that were presented at the 2018 symposium at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. The winner of that symposium was author Ryan McCannell and his Evolution of Civil Affairs and Interagency Partnerships in Sub-Saharan Africa. Coming in second place was the issue paper titled Optimizing Civil Affairs Through Branding and Narrative Strategies. Tied for third, were papers titled, Optimizing Civil Affairs through Reorganizing the Force, and Civil Affairs 38 Gulf Functional Specialists, From Strategy to Reality. Rounding out the top five papers at the 2018 symposium was the paper titled, Developing Civil Affairs, Increasing Soldier Flexibility and Doctrinal Specificity. So stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the 1CA podcast and catch up with what's happening in the CA issue papers. So the third recommendation that you and the other co-authors had in the book was to create an engagement warfighting function. Wasn't that previously considered by the Army and rejected in the last few years?
0: Yeah. So the uh, we talk about it in the book, some of us, a couple, I think Sue Bryant, Ben, maybe to a degree, and of course General Cleveland. You know, had limited, you know, participation in this effort along the way, these past several years, but you know, they all touched it in some form or fashion, but. It was an idea. I mean, it started with like, okay, we need a new warfaring function, um, special operations. No, don't call it that. Call it human day. No, don't call it that. So it ended up becoming called, you know, engagement. And it was going to be engagement influence, but no, engagement was a safer word. And then after they started the, the capabilities-based assessment, they started to go on this journey. You know, just eventually it was just kind of rejected by our kicker. It didn't it didn't have sufficient evidence, I don't think. It wasn't organized or coherent in a way for people to understand what the change was, what change was being made and why the change. So I don't know to full certainty any wide, but that's what I've heard is that it just it never made it past the finish line, and it stopped. I don't know if it's going to get kicked back on again or if multi-domain operations is going to bring this back into the Some way. Looking at the initial, you know, this rele- recent release of uh, MVO 1.5, looks like there's some elements of that, you know, engagement idea in there. We'll see how it takes shape and form.
1: Okay. So we have six warfighting functions currently, right? We have mission command, movement and maneuver intelligence, fires, sustainment, and protection. Do you think any of the existing warfighting functions cover anything related to the concept of engagement? So, I mean, the mission command, obviously, a little bit, in terms of how you collect and manage and process
0: information for, you know, command control purposes. But, uh, no, we think that the human domain concept and construct, the, the, the theoretical foundation we try to establish in the book, I maybe mean, we propose that, you, you do need some kind of warfighting function for, you know, not just engagement, but engage in influence. I mean, influence is an important thing. We should be, we should have, you know, forces or commands or whatever, whatever units organized and conduct, you know, having a constant stare at how do you influence and how do you, I mean, this, the technology you know, today is changing so fast and it just requires the the right type of leadership and talent to, to manage that type of fight so that we're more effective in, in the information space. So I, I think you need some
1: kind of, uh, warfighting function, or we need to be organized in that, in that way. Yeah. So you talked about uh, some of the acronyms, the uh, CBA, Capabilities-Based Assessment, and then ARCIC, the Army Capabilities Integration Center, uh, which is the home for figuring out whether we need something new and how it fits in with what we have currently. How would trying to start a new warfighting function come about? Could you talk about that process and, and how it was tried with engagement in the past?
0: It's a big question. Okay. So, right now the the Army you know as a the, the last job I was in this is the Chief of staff for the Army futures studies you're, you know we are tasked to, to create build plan sh- and do the research behind the uh, the new Army futures command so the whole process of how that how you build a capability I want to say that some of that may be changing and unfolding right now uh, as we speak I mean Arctic is getting ready to get realigned underneath the Army futures command traditionally you you know you'd You'd have your capability space assessment, which starts with uh, I think what you said was a functional solutions analysis. But yet beyond that, I mean, in the in the back of the book, we put, we have an appendix where we propose a policy brief where we recommend for this exploration to occur, where you know define the human domain, assign ownership. You know whether it's SOCOM or or the Army, or some part of the Army, the irregular affair. There's there's parts of this all over, all over already. But what we saw recently with the uh, peacekeeping, stability operations to possibly going away. I don't know if that was was finally decided or not, but, you know, a number of other organizations, you know, they're, they're kind of like disparate efforts that are kind of all over the army. We think that, you know, we propose in the book, like a higher level command or element needs to take ownership of this, this space, this human domain. And, you know, SOCOM kind of has it right now. Maybe it's them. And so like, if, for instance, if that's, what does that mean to civil affairs? Does that mean that some, if, if civil affairs is a, if, we're a critical component of the, the human domain, mapping out the civil dimension part of it and, and doing a number of things to map out the networks and such. If that was your, your craft, and now SOCOM owns it, then they need to take ownership of this. So then maybe that starts to realign and reorganize, maybe bring the regiment back together in a way that, you know, right now we're kind of fragmented. I think what we're asking for is the journey needs to, I mean, it doesn't need to begin. It already has It's happened. We have the Strategic Land Power Task Force. We just need to take whatever they did which i think resulted in the human aspects of military operations and um what are the the joint campaign for integrated or joint integrated campaigning the the new phasing construct um so those those things emerged but we don't, we don't think it's sufficient i mean i think that you need to have you know start building organizations and structures that and the capabilities to address the challenges with, of operating and being more effective in the human domain so it, the journey just needs to get re-kicked back on, and, and someone needs to be assigned
1: you know, the leadership to do it. Right. So you're talking about a couple different aspects of the, the acronym that we call MIL PFP. And the first step of that you talked about is the functional solution analysis. And, and that would be needed if we're going to add a human domain to joint U.S. doctrine. You mentioned that some reorganization may be needed or may be more beneficial than what we have now. But the same thing for leadership. When you look at some of the other aspects of it, in either what you've talked about in the book or what you've discussed with other people now after the book has come out. Uh, what additional training or personnel or policies do you think would be needed for human domain at the joint level?
0: So we have a lot of it. It's a matter of you know, fusing a lot of these capabilities together. There's a belief I have that if you just say that we're going to focus on high-end warfighting and combined arms maneuver. And any commander who's in charge of that can do all the other things. It's just kind of the fallacy. In the book, I call it the fallacy, the lesser included. Like, if we do that right, we can do everything else. We'll add it in. Well, I think that the whether it's an influence campaign or civil affairs activity that needs to happen for a, a certain effect in a certain you know country or theater, I mean, those type of activities, they're so complex and complicated that they need the level of leadership and attention to where that's, that's required to, 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 make sure it goes, it brings all those capabilities to bear in a meaningful way so that you get the right type of synergy you want. I think that as, as we go forward and, and continue the discourse, like this multi-domain operations isn't going anywhere. I mean, General Milley is about to be the joint chiefs now. And so how we fit into this, I think what we do is we work, you know, the, the, and I'm sure it's happening. Uh, I'm sure we have some smart folks out there that officers, NCOs that are, a part of this multi main operations are sitting in places like ARKEE or TRADEOC, or even in Futures Command, where we start to become a part of the the discussion of like, what does that mean? And I think there's room in that construct of the multi main operations to say, hey, this human domain stuff is is important. And you know, and and that, of course, information operations and and all this other stuff, it all ties in, so that you know, we t- we're taking on new approaches. I mean, so it's all about. So strategy is all about the the art of creating power. So in the book, we talk about these new forms of power, you know, this network making power, network power. It can be pretty decisive for future war.
1: Yeah, it's exciting to see. uh, It would be exciting to see how this evolves over time. You talked a little bit about how civil affairs would fit into the mix. And, you know, we'd have to be the ones uh, to analyze the human domain uh, at the tactical level, still engage, obviously, with people on the battlefield to influence what they're doing to our ends. How else do you think civil affairs forces at the tactical operational level would fit into your future of human domain?
0: We're doing a lot of this already. We're out there working with different partners. I mean, we're not out there doing things unilaterally, even bilaterally. It's it's multilateral. And so, in General Milley, I'll just make one point. Going back to this, like what you know, China, Russia, and, and he he's now going to be the joint chief. So, when I was with him and uh, my new boss, the the British chief of their army. General Carlton Smith. You know, General Milley made a point of like saying, and you know, this is back you think in October, and he said, Hey, look, our network, with all the combined countries and allies, I mean, we're like ten times I think ten or twelve times more powerful than the Russians or Chinese. So that's something that's that's, a, that's an interesting point you know, that he makes and a, a powerful one, is that so it goes back to like I said earlier, is that this for us, we're already doing it. We're partnered. But it's taking these these networks of partners and mapping it in a way that you can you know you start to see the value of it so that when people are like well i don't know if the C thing is something we need you know this is irrelevant like well geez like look at these overlapping networks of people that they're touching and managing in in a a number of regions i mean that's a pretty that's a powerful thing and it's making a big difference in in different parts of the world in ukraine to you know up in you know the Baltics to all the way in the you know in every every theater we have forces doing all this stuff. So, I think our our forces as a critical component of the human domain in, in creating you know creating this capability of these these networks that are able to influence. It's just how do you how do you package that and market it in a way that people understand start to understand what it is that we bring to the table,
1: Colonel David. If, if at all, do you think uh, and how should civil affairs forces and their supporters start their own influence campaign? to increase the demand for human domain and joint U.S. doctrine.
0: Right now, running this platform and getting a podcast going, where we're able to tell our stories and shares is a, a big part of that. I always constantly I mentor a number of captains, invaders, and majors and NCOs connected with over time and help them balance, you know, talk through ideas and, and, and debate about things and, and honestly help them publish sometimes and get just get stuff out there. So I think that we should constantly think, read, and write, and, and publish. If we can, these ideas and just be a part of the discourse, it's pretty powerful. I mean, there's some people I've, I've talked to in the past senior leaders, like, oh, no one reads stuff. And it's not, I mean, I, I'll tell you right now that uh, there's things that I've published and they've been pretty influential to where, you know, that, for instance, like uh, this, this information operation stuff in Afghanistan, you know, we're going to brief the ComRS, the Commander for Resident Support, General Nicholson. And uh, I published an article on Real Clear Defense and, you know, it was forwarded to him like several times by a number of other generals. So, like, I know it works. If if you get the right audience and you get the right, you know, publication medium, you know, your ideas are pretty clear and it's meaningful. It 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 might get shared. So, I think contributing to the dialogue and it just makes us improve each other's ideas. So we refine it, you know, build off each other. So that's one way. It's just publishing right and and get it out there.
1: Right. So, how there's some uh, senior NCOs, mid grade NCOs, or officers who are in the civil affairs force and in the army and the marine corps or people who care about civil affairs issues. Are there any advice that you'd have for them for getting over the hump of they got some idea in the back of their mind or they've written it down on a napkin just to put it on paper and submit it? Uh, is there any reluctance that you've heard from people to do that? So that's, that's a fantastic question, man. I mean,
0: sometimes it takes a lot of courage to write and publish and put your ideas out there, right? Because like you, when you put it out there, it's out there. So it takes enormous courage. I would say, you know, find a mentor. There's plenty out there. Like I said, I've done, a, I've done helped a bunch of people get stuff out there on different mediums, a smaller journal, War on the Rocks, and, and what have you. Get with people that have similar interests or, or can help or even red team your idea before you put it out there. And uh, the, the Civil Affairs Association, um, Chris Holshick, John Church, a number of leaders on the reserve side that are retired have been very helpful. The late Dr. Mueller, Kurt Mueller. So get with mentors. Get with people like Dr. Kurt Mueller and Chris Holshek who are willing to take the time to to help read, mentor on uh, the, the the civil affairs essay papers you know contributing to those um, giving those a shot. And I mean I think that we're getting way better at this. You're um, starting to see a, a larger volume of people write and contribute stuff. So that's really good. I mean participate in the podcast and just and just talk just, just learn from each other, just help each other out. We need to be a learning organization.
1: Sir, I wanted to ask you one other question. Do you have any advice for officers or NCOs coming up in the civil affairs force today?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the big mis- misnomers is that uh, you have to stay close to the mothership at Fort Bragg and stay NCA units to, to help influence things. And, and to be honest, like, what I've discovered is that some of my, I think my biggest influence or contributions to civil affairs have been my time outside the branch. So I guess my biggest you know, recommendation to those coming up is, you know, do your time. Enjoy your tea time. Enjoy your time with the Silver Fairs company and, and doing Silver Affairs stuff. But as you get a little more older, like, don't be afraid to, to venture out. And we need good talent in places that are outside the branch, at the T-SOX or at, you know, Theater Special Operations Command or, you know, Army Component Commands. We need good leaders there, too, to help influence things. So don't be afraid to venture out. But thanks for asking that question.
1: Lieutenant Colonel RNL David, co-author of Military Strategy for the 21st Century, People, Connectivity, and Competition. Sir, you're doing it right now. I, I congratulate you and your co-authors for getting this book out, for sharing the word, pushing the ideas that you have. And thank you very much for being on the 1CA Podcast.
0: Uh, thank you, John, appreciate it.
1: Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment 1 CA. Until then, be safe and secure
0: the victory.